This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select, eh, sometimes at random, sometimes based on the calendar. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 160th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we are looking at P.T. Boat Skipper Captain Storm, number 17. From DC Comics, cover dated January-February, 1967. This is an episode for hashtag War Comics Month. And if the schedule works out as planned, this episode will be released on Veterans Day 2020. Or as it may be referred to elsewhere in the world, Remembrance Day or Armistice Day. But first, a little feedback. James Williams commented on last episode, although not on the actual content of the episode, just its mere existence. Two episodes in two weeks? Nice. Yes, James, we do aim to please. Dr. Ange wrote in on the episode before that, but it didn't make the deadline for appearing last time because of the quick turnaround of the two Tarzan issues, which James Williams thought was nice, but it does make Ange's feedback an episode late. Fortunately, we did do two Tarzan shows, so it still fits here. Like you, Dr. Ange says, it's hard for me to know when I first heard of Tarzan, one of those ever-present bits of pop culture. I think a local UHF channel used to play the Weissmuller movies on Saturday morning, but they couldn't compete with cartoons. I did watch the Filmation series and liked the Tarzan, Zorro, Lone Ranger stuff. And of course, ahem, I did see the Bo Derek movie on cable at possibly a younger-than-I-should-have age. I had high hopes for the Christopher Lambert Greystoke, but was let down. But I have never read any Tarzan comics, nor have I read any from that genre, Kazar, or etc. Note to self. Next hashtag comic book circle of life package for Ange. Remember this. Uh, he said, I don't know if this series would tempt me, but I do like hearing about the Tarzan comics so I can decide if I should delve into them at all. I mean, that's sort of true for me too, Ange, because yeah, as, as I said, I'm a bit of a latecomer to Tarzan and Jungle Books myself. It wasn't until maybe five or ten years ago that I started reading this style, this uh, genre of comic. It is an odd genre, and not all of the conventions of that genre work for me, but the good ones I find can be fun changes of pace from the superhero soap opera story comics. Social media love for last episode came from Clinton, 
from Fan Film Fridays, Baby Skeletor, Sir Luke Giaconetti, Drew from Comics for Fun and Profit, Billy D from Magazines and Monsters, Karen from Between the Pages, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Paul from the Collected Edition, Chris Lydon, Laurel Mountain Flower from the Huntress podcast, Chris from Professor Frenzy, It's a Show, Derek from the History of Comics on Film, Scott Schmidt from Pistol Whip Press, Spy Vinyl, Mike from Comics in the Golden Age, Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist, Pat from the Long Box Crusade, Gene Hendricks from the Hammer Strikes, and our listeners of the year, the kind and lovely Sutherlands from the Rad Adventures Network. So let's take a break here, play a promo, and when we get back, I'll be looking at Captain Storm, number 17. Hey folks, this is Jared Albrecht, a.k.a. The Yard Sale Artist and semi-regular co-host of the Longbox Crusade podcast with Pat Sampson. Pat came to me recently with a fantastic idea on how we might get the podcast community involved in taking some action to do some good. He called this idea Comics for Courage. Comics for Courage is a concept that came to Pat after I told him the fantastic true story of when I was stationed in Iraq during my military service. While there, I received a huge care package of comic books from the awesome folks over at Wizard and Toy Fair magazines. We had so many comics, we didn't know what to do with them all. Seriously, it was over 100 pounds of comics. So me and a couple of buddies took the bounty of comics we had down to the give-and-take library we'd set up in our headquarters building. And you know what? Within 24 hours, all the comics were gone. The bottom line here is that throughout history, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, one thing remains a constant. Soldiers love comics. It's quick, easy, fun reading that gives a soldier a taste of home and lets them escape into an amazing world of comics, even if it's just for a few minutes. So here's the best part of Comics for Courage. Pat and I aren't asking you to donate one cent of your money to Comics for Courage. What we would love is for you to donate your excess comics. You know those ones that are just kind of laying around. Just drop them into a box or a big envelope and mail them over to supportourtroops.org. Their mailing address is Support Our Troops, 13617 North Florida Avenue, Tampa, Florida, 33613. Now, they will make sure those comics get distributed to random soldier care packages, and as a person who's been on the receiving end of this, I can tell you it will mean a lot. And if you'd rather donate money than give up a single comic book, trust me, we understand about that, you can donate through their website as well. Again, that's supportourtroops.org. Just remember two things, all right? Two things. One, make sure the comics have good, clean content. No nudity or adults-only comics, please. Those are the rules for any military member receiving goods downrange. Okay, and number two, this is the fun one. Please take a picture of you with your donation stack and post it on Twitter or Facebook at Longbox Crusade. Or email it to contact at longboxcrusade.com. We'd love to give you an on-air shout-out and post your pic on the longboxcrusade.com website. In summary, Pat and I over at Longbox Crusade Podcast would greatly appreciate you taking this small action to make a difference in the life of someone who is far from home defending our freedoms. Thank you for supporting a Comics for Courage initiative. 
That website again is supportourtroops.org. Please check it out. Throw them some comics. Make some soldiers happy. We appreciate it. Thanks again. And we're back. PT Boat Skipper, Captain Storm number 17, had a cover price of 12 cents, meaning I made the mighty sacrifice by paying a premium of 108% over that original price. The things I do for you people. You're welcome. The cover of the book has that full long name, PT Boat Skipper Captain Storm. The Indicia just calls it Captain Storm. I will jump back and forth between those, by the way. Uh, The credits for this issue, like many issues from 50-plus years ago, are not included in the issue and are uncertain and have been recreated at least partially from Julius Schwartz's notes or notes in his records. That tidbit is, according to the info at the Grand Comics Database, comics.org, which I will use for the episode in terms of uh, where I've gotten the credits from. The cover by Irv Novick, and here we go, possibly Joe Kubert, shows a couple of ships exchanging fire in a windswept sea. We are told that Captain Storm makes an impossible promise in First Shot for a Dead Man. The cover also contains a circular inset panel of a man in a captain's hat screaming orders of some kind. This is, I assumed, and was correct, this is Captain Storm. The issue has two stories in it. First up is the 14-page cover story, First Shot for a Dead Man, scripted by the editor, Robert Kaniger. Often, when anthology books from this era, maybe war books, maybe sci-fi books, when books like that don't have scripting credits, the writing was, in fact, often done by the editor. So that's why the assumption is that Robert Kaniger wrote this story. But whoever wrote it, the art for this one was by Irv Novick. And I'm not going to go over the first page, as it basically lays out the plot for the story. So we'll turn the page and start on page two with this narration from the captain. The blazing sun beat down on our heads like sparks from a fire as PT-47 sped on. The boat pulls up alongside a dead body, that of a young American sailor. There was something about the dead man's face that gripped me. And the captain hears the dead man's voice speaking inside his head. The sailor was killed without firing a shot at the enemy. And he begs, begs silently, for Captain Storm to help him make his death mean something. Convinced that the heat is getting to him, Captain Storm goes about his business, which is patrolling the Pacific. They battle an enemy destroyer, and after, again, he hears the dead man plea to make his life worthwhile, to make his death worthwhile. Shortly thereafter, an enemy sub resurfaces right under the PT boat, and the enemy ends up boarding. 
They and my crew fought each other eyeball to eyeball. Captain Storm noticed them going for the conning tower. That must mean they're going to dive and torpedo us at periscope level. That torpedo ended up missing the 47, and the returned fire of depth charges take care of the enemy sub. Again, the dead sailor speaks to the captain. It's the heat and the fighting. I'm seeing things, hearing things that aren't there. But it'll be all right when we get back to port. Now, on the way back to port, they learn that their drinking water has gone bad. So they have to stop at one of the islands for a fresh supply. The problem is that the enemy had the same idea a few hours later, and there's a battle on the shore. My wooden leg held me back, so I was the last man to get back to the beach. Oh, did I not mention the wooden leg? Yeah. Captain Storm has a wooden leg. The captain goes mano a mano with a sword-wielding enemy soldier. He knocks the gun out of Storm's hand, but before the killing blow can be struck, the captain applies leverage and throws the man off. He does make it to the beach, and the PT-47 heads out to sea again. And the dead man speaks again. When the right time comes, you'll give me the chance to fight, to strike my first blow against the enemy, won't you? You won't let my death be so cheap that I couldn't even fire one shot against the enemy. You're the only one who can help me. Help me. The captain determines not to go back down there near the body again, but wonders, how can I help that sailor? That's when the air was filled with screaming lead. Two fighters, even as we got one of them, we were blasted by the other. Everyone on the deck was blacked out from the blast. This is the time for that sailor to fire his shot against the enemy, and I wish he could. It must have been the effects of the blast, but Captain Storm saw the dead soldier manning the gun on the deck. He held his ground as the fighter came on. The plane was shot down, and a crew member later congratulated Storm, but he hadn't fired the gun. And of course the sailor, gone. Then who fired the big guns? I limped below, and the blanket had loosened. And I can see his face now. And there's a smile on it that wasn't there before. Crazy things happen at sea. I wished for him, and he came. He didn't die cheap this time. The end. Okay, let's talk about this one for a few minutes. One style bit that I have to mention in terms of the art, and, and it's almost a DC war book house style, or at least it's it's a common element. I have seen it in other war books uh, at times. And that is the inclusion of circular inset art panels. And this story has one on almost every page, including the cover. Mostly, these panels are close-ups of Captain Storm. Maybe just his eyes, maybe his whole face. But we get his emotion of the moment. Shock, anger, determination, uh, sadness. It's an interesting bit of art, or a bit of design at least. Uh, and I liked it. 
The story itself, well, in one particular meaning of the word, it's safe to say it's a weird story. And as a matter of fact, that is an entire subgenre of war books, weird war, a combination of war with horror or supernatural elements. Think of it as the urban fantasy of its time, although without the romance or erotic overtones. Or, to compare it to more mainstream literature, think of it as the magical realism of war books. The most famous example of this subgenre is probably The Haunted Tank, although they're certainly not the only ones. The War That Time Forgot, the Creature Commandos, G.I. Zombie, uh, those are other ones. And there are a lot of more general war comics, like Captain Storm, that will occasionally tell stories like this, that have ghost elements or, or other supernatural fare. I wonder if this is a way to lessen the reality, the brutality of war, to make it purposely less realistic and maybe less scary to younger readers. A war setting is by its nature dramatic and could be scary to young readers if presented accurately. I, I don't know. And of course, a lot of the first generation of writers of war books were veterans themselves of World War II. And maybe adding these otherworldly elements were ways of distancing themselves from the reality of the events they witnessed, they lived through. I don't know. That is all speculation. In, in terms of this story, I do like the way that it was structured. Because as soon as we get that conversation with the dead guy, which was on the first page, it, it is the inciting incident for the entire story. But as soon as that happened, we knew that this guy would find his redemption. Captain Storm was not going to fail him. His desire to finally fire on the enemy, that would happen. And then during the issue, we keep having incidents where it doesn't happen. It wasn't until the fourth such incident that this actually occurred. So you have this buildup, this expectation and it keeps getting pushed back, pushed back. And that just continues to actually ratchet up the tension. And that's quite a trick to make a story dramatic and tense when you really do know at a basic plot level where it's going. You do know, broad outlines, how it's going to end. And yet it's still kind of suspenseful. It's very good writing in that sense. It's very good storytelling, at least. Now, by the way, I did mention Captain Storm's wooden leg. This is a key aspect of the character and his, his backstory, but it's barely mentioned until more than two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through this particular story. And it's a strange bit of characterization because I would assume that, again, if we're talking realistically, that he would have been forcibly retired from the service and not allowed to continue to be a captain. But that does add kind of a superpower to him, the ability to overcome a physical uh, limitation or handicap. And it probably wasn't thought about at the time, at least not consciously, but the idea of a hero in a war book who is physically imperfect, that's a change of pace, and maybe there's a message there 
Maybe there's an everyman aspect to giving your manly man lead naval captain and, if you will, Achilles heel. Also, next time you're in a conversation about comic heroes with disabilities, don't jump right to Daredevil or Professor X. Remember, PT Boat Skipper, Captain Storm. Now, there was another story in the issue, although it did not feature our pig-legged hero. This is a nine-pager, Jump into Viet Cong Hell, written by Hank Chapman, with art by Wynn Mortimer. I'll go over this one a little more quickly. This is in the Vietnam era, the title made clear. And our lead character this time is Casey, a paratrooper. And when we start, he is landing hard in the Vietnam mud, but is able to get the mortar base plate set up. But because of the particulars of the terrain, even though the VC's mortars are reaching our guys, our mortars are not quite getting to them. They have a higher ground uh, partway up a, a, a hill or a small mountain. And marching around looking for maybe a better location, our guys do run into a squad of the enemies and some hand-to-hand consequences are delivered. So we determine that in order to get to the VC mortar base, the team has to swim through a river and someone's going to have to climb up an embankment to get to the high ground. Casey does this, commenting that his paratrooper wings are turning into webbed feet with all the mud and water he's been forced to go through. But he climbs up the side of the mountain and he gets above where the VC mortar base is. But there are combatants up up there, and he tosses a few grenades their way, but he has to head out of there. So the only thing he can do is dive back off the cliff, throwing some grenades at the embankment on his way down. And he does so dramatically and successfully exploding the enemy attack base without a parachute landing back in the river, or as he calls it on the last page, jumping the hard way. Not a bad little story, although the ethnic background of the enemy combatants do lead to some coloring choices that might be less acceptable uh, today. This is the late 60s, and the coloring is not as bad as it had been 20-plus years before. For a practical purpose, we've gotten better since then with the technology of color to be more subtle in presenting various skin tones in comics. Perhaps also we've become more sensitive in a sociological sense. Uh, This story did go for some irony, which I like, some very light humor, by focusing on a paratrooper who spends his time in the mud, spends his time in the jungle, and the one time he does get to skydive, He has to do it without a parachute. So we have bravery and confidence and a high level of skill on display. And in a war book, that is what you want. So not a lot of depth, not a lot of characterization, but a good, solid backup story. The Verdict on Captain Storm 17, a solid lead story, very well executed, ramping up the tension in a cool artistic bit that is carried throughout. And a backup, that's not too bad either. 
and even at this outrageous markup, paying more than double the cover price. This is a true quarter bin deal. Now that does not wrap up my coverage of Captain Storm just yet, though, because I have a bonus issue for this episode. It doesn't count technically as a quarter bin book, because I got it courtesy of Sir Iowa's Joe. And one of the rules on the quarter bin is that if I'm given a book, even though I didn't pay for it, so it cost me nothing, it doesn't count as a quarter bin book. Because this is about books that are generally available for the public to purchase at a quarter or less. Now, of course, that reasoning is also largely why I started the Comics Reading Journal series. Uh, But anyway, uh, thank you, Joe, for the bonus book. That's what we're calling it, the bonus book for this episode, which is Captain Storm 14. So, three issues earlier, but, you know, these war books were not exactly known for their tight continuity. I'm not worried about that. The cover by Russ Heath shows... Well, I could look it up on the computer, but that would be cheating. Because you see, the one I have, the one given to me by Sir Iowa's Joe, is coverless. So, we'll just skip that part of the outline, okay? First up is Sink Captain Storm, a 15-page story written by Robert Kanniger with art chores falling again to Irv Novick. We start, again, with an interior splash page that gives a lot of spoilers, so I'll just give us the dramatic prose heading instead. The enemy left Captain Storm, the wood-legged PT boat skipper, with the kind of agonizing choice that men in war have nightmares about. In the searing sea battle tale, sink Captain Storm. We start right out with the Japanese sub-commander commenting on how weak America must be, putting a wooden-legged man in command of a PT boat. It turns out that uh, their ship, the PT-47, was specifically targeted by the enemy sub singled out for the enemy's hate list. We flash back to earlier in Captain Storm's career to when his little mosquito boat managed to sink a destroyer that had the misfortune of having an Imperial Admiral aboard. Now Storm's superior offers him a desk job after that, seeing as the enemy won't rest until they sink him. It's the Samurai Code. On leave in Pearl Harbor, Storm visits the others who have been laid up in what they call the, quote, lame duck ward, unquote. And he dances and romances a particular nurse who he had spent some time with before when he was recovering from his injuries. And then back on the ship, we get caught up with the current predicament, how in protecting a battleship, the enemy sub took out the PT-47. Back to exactly where we started. The enemy commander berating the captured Captain Storm. We have sunk the PT-47. Now we will bring back their scarecrow captain in a cage to show our people the fate of all who defy us. 
and then as the sub bobs in the ocean, the captain loses his footing and falls overboard. The enemy fire weapons at him, but he's not hit. And Storm manages to find his sunken ship. And because he knows exactly where it is, he manages to grab and unmoor a magnetic torpedo from it. Using the waves to disguise his small form, Storm manages to get himself and the torpedo up next to the Japanese sub. And he knows what he has to do. Because despite the presence of his crew still captive on the sub, Storm knows, again, what he has to do. If I don't crack that sub wide open, it'll find the battleship and rip it apart. If I blow the sub apart, I'll be killing my own men. And the decision he has to make is about sacrificing his small crew to save the much larger group of seamen on the battleship. And on the last page, with a wham, that is exactly what he does. His supervisor speaks of the cruel arithmetic of war. And that why they fight is so that these type of tragedies need never happen again. And then on the last panel, we see our rugged hero, Captain Storm, shedding a few tears in remembrance of his sacrificed crew. The end. That one was intense. A real war is hell story. Tough decisions, tough choices for the leaders. Wow, it's a a bold, dark story. I did like the couple of pages, the uh, sort of interval at the hospital on Pearl. Storm is a celebrity among the patients at the hospital who are all going through physical therapy of one kind or another, uh, both because it's known that there is this personal vendetta against him Uh, from the Imperial Navy, but also how he managed to get out of the hospital and fight again, despite the wooden leg. I would also point out, I can't imagine swimming in the ocean with a wooden leg would be all that easy. And I I didn't mention this earlier about the first issue when I talked about the wooden leg, but given the history of peg-legged pirates... In literature and pop culture, it makes a cool sort of literary sense to give our naval hero not just a physical handicap, but that specific limitation, that one in particular. So I think it's a good choice in terms of the character creation, the character development. And when we have such big stakes in war books... It's really important to focus in, to really zero in on one character and and, and their story, to personalize the reading experience. And so to have our hero the victim of a personal vendetta, that adds a nice touch in terms of adding personal drama, but also boosting his uh, hero score. Uh, That really serves as a way in for readers to identify with the story 
to become invested in the story. And that ending. Wow. Dark. In a good story. We also have an eight-pager to wrap up this uh, bonus issue, Frying Pan Seat, written again by Kanneker, with art this time by Ross Andrew and Mike Esposito. We start with this caption. Mickey, always like to be out in the fresh air. But in war, the air is filled with a lot of other things besides oxygen, which he found out when he sat in the frying pan seat. This is the story of a fellow who's always liked the cold, liked fresh air, could never stand being in hot places. And of course, when he enlists, he gets assigned to drive a tank where he never gets any fresh air. And then when he gets a chance to be the tank gunner and get some fresh air for a change, he learns that despite those quote-unquote benefits, that is still one hot seat. You know, sometimes you just need filler in a comic book. You need an eight-page story because you have an eight-page hole and you need to put out an issue every month. And that's exactly what this was. This was page filler. I mean, it was okay, um, but it wasn't a story with any ambition. Like like the lead story, the Captain Storm story had ambition. All this one needed to do was fill eight pages, and that's what it did. That's about all it did. Uh, I want to point out that both of these Captain Storm issues included single-page collections of Murray Boltonoff gags, uh, military-related, none of which were all that funny, at least not up to the standard of sad sack that I've come to expect from military humor. Each one also had a half-page hobby hints feature, one about making a rotating platform to help in painting model cars or airplanes, and there was one about restoring the tire treads to a toy racing car. That one involved using a stove burner to heat up a piece of metal screen. So yeah, that one would get DC sued out of business so fast these days. <laughs> you know, but sometimes I think the ads and, and those special features give you way more of a look into an era than even the stories do sometimes. Uh, fascinating. Now, finally, that wraps up my coverage of Captain Storm 17, and sort of, but not really, because it doesn't meet the criteria, and I'm a stickler for the rules on this podcast. And I would never, ever break one of them ever. You all know this, Captain Storm 14, simply a bonus book, bringing episode 160 to a close. If you like hearing me talk about war books, I'll be doing a lot of that in the November Reading Journal, which will be out in early December. And I have a chance for doing a special war book-centric episode of something later in November 2020 here on the feed, but that's not a done deal yet, so just... Keep your fingers crossed and your eyes peeled. 
and to Scott, Bill, Terry, Steve, Afro, Jared, Jason, Delvin, and every other former or current member of the Armed Services of the United States or any other free country. Thank you for your service. Happy Veterans Day. As far as the Quarterbin podcast is concerned, next time, it depends a little bit on the calendar because we do have a holiday episode coming up, but we should be able to squeeze in another Quarterbin podcast before that. And if if I'm able to do that, that next issue will be All-Star Comics 63 from DC Comics, of course, cover dated November, December 1976. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the episode, Captain Storm, War Books, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.